You're listening to sermon audio from Gospelite Baptist Church. For more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit gospelite.org. We're continuing this morning in our series each month where we are looking at the core values of Gospelite. This month, the month of March, we have focused on the third value. And that value aligns with the letter S, G-O-S. January was G, and and, and February was O, and, and, and March was S. Service with excellence has been our focus. We've talked about going the extra mile. We've talked about excellence honors God. And excellence, I pray that it has inspired you as we have taken some of these messages, beginning with the first Sunday of the month where we talked about Daniel's excellent spirit. And how having an excellent spirit is necessary to serve at the next level. And then in the second week, uh, we discussed extra mile living. How that Jesus said in Matthew five forty two that when someone asks you to go one mile, go with him too. And in a one mile world, be a two mile Christian. And then last week, Pastor Butch preached a phenomenal message about next level faith. So what God has, I believe, called me to do this morning is to take those three thoughts together and consider a very familiar parable of the Lord Jesus. And in this parable, it's going to be very interesting. You're going to meet in the parable two people who see and interruption come into their lives, and what they do is they view the interruption as an inconvenience. But there's one in the parable. He views the interruption as an invitation to be inconvenienced. You know, I think you'd agree with me that most people do not like to be inconvenienced. Our Western culture provides things to minimize inconvenience all around us. And so after we have spent uh, our lives avoiding inconvenience, and then all of a sudden we suddenly decide to choose to inconvenience ourselves by intentionally making an effort to reach out to someone and help someone, it, it, there's a sense of contradiction and some tension involved in that. I can speak firsthand to that. I mean, we're busy people. There's a lot going on in our lives. And we're trying to get from point A to point B without any interruption. And any interruption is an inconvenience. You may have noticed the title of my message this morning as we continue talking about service with excellence being our focus and what it looks like to live on the extra mile. I believe inconvenience is an enemy of helping and serving others. And I'd like to address that this morning. I believe Jesus has taught us how to defeat the enemy through one of his 38 parables in the Word of God. And of all 38 parables, this one parable seems to be known in principle by both Christians and by non-Christians. It's rather interesting. Because there's a principle here in this story that we call the parable of the good Samaritan. And the phrase Good Samaritan has become part of our common language. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, here at Gospel Light, every year we partner with a group called Samaritan's Purse. Every year. And we together with 
thousands of churches, tens of thousands of organizations and churches and Christians. We partnered with them to send millions of boxes around the world through Samaritan's Purse. And it comes from the idea of being a good Samaritan. In Hot Springs Village, I, I just looked up to see in our own community, what, are there any other Good Samaritan groups? And there was a, a non-Christian organization that calls themselves the Good Samaritan Society. They provide senior care and services in the Hot Springs Village. The Good Samaritan Society is committed to providing an unprecedented level of quality, service, excellence, compassionate care, and a range of amenities to ensure their residents enjoy a carefree, fulfilling lifestyle that is tailored to their needs. Many of our lighthouses partner with a Christian organization in our community called Samaritan's Ministries. All about being a good Samaritan. This group was formed in 2003. It's an Arkansas nonprofit organization. They raise funds to acquire, renovate, equip, and transform an old 10,000 square foot warehouse into a Christian based rescue mission for homeless men. Pretty incredible. These are some groups of Christians. Some are, are not Christian. Now, the word good to describe a Samaritan was definitely not a phrase in use by Jews in Jesus' day. And don't miss that. Good and Samaritan would not be used in the same sentence. A Samaritan was a, a half Jew and half Arab. They were despised by the Jews in Jesus' day. It's important to know that because for Jesus to introduce a parable and call a Samaritan good was very controversial. Now, to set this parable up, Jesus is questioned by a lawyer. Elijah's a lawyer, good friend of mine, a gospelite graduate, great young man. He's already helping me out in multiple ways and helping different people in our church. What a resource God has given us in this young man. Elijah, I I think you would agree with me that as an expert, and I'll get to this and see if you'll nod in just a moment, an expert in Old Testament law was lawyers back back in that day. That's what they would have been. Lawyers need to know the law, right? And so here he is, an expert in Old Testament law, and what Jesus does is he gets this lawyer to answer his own question. The lawyer asks a question. Jesus then gets the lawyer to answer his own question, and in doing so, the Word of God convicts the lawyer. I want you to see it. Look with me at Luke chapter 10, verse 25, on the screen or in your Bibles. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. He said, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I don't know if he said it that way, but I sense in the text some sarcasm. He says, Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answers and says, I I know the law. I'm an expert. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul with all your strength, with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. 
Do this, and you will live. Now, Jesus here was speaking about relationships. Because relationships are oftentimes what the Bible is all about. Having a relationship with God, which is extremely important. And also, though, he teaches us to have the right relationships with man, with people. He points out that the real challenge, though, is not necessarily to love God. The real challenge, the difficult challenge, is to love our neighbor. Relationships can be so varied, can't they? It's crazy. I mean, we have relationships in our lives that we enjoy, we love. We're attracted to those relationships. We want to be in that small group because those people that are just like me are in that small group. I feel really good. I really really feel comfortable. Or I sit on this side of the auditorium because I feel comfortable in this little section, but I don't know. I go to 9 o'clock because who's in 1045 or whatever. And sometimes relationships can be weird. It's just goofy. I don't know. They just, I'm just a little uncomfortable with that neighbor, with that person. It's interesting, isn't it? But Jesus didn't say, love the neighbors you like. The challenge comes when I am placed in a position to show love toward a neighbor that I don't know or I don't like. Life is busy, isn't it? It is. And because life is so busy, if I'm going to inconvenience myself and help someone, it's probably going to be somebody I like or somebody I know. Definitely somebody I'm comfortable with, like family. I mean, family. Family's always there, right? I can, I can help family. I, I feel comfortable with family. Or maybe somebody that looks like me or, 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 or that, I, that I know really well. And so, I mean, I, I feel comfortable. And even then, I may look for an excuse, even then. Even if I know them, even if I like them, because I'm so busy, I don't want to be inconvenienced. And so I'm prone to make excuses. Satan will use busyness to distract us. Satan will use busyness to divert our attention from what the Holy Spirit is leading us to do. Satan will use bitterness to turn us away from helping certain people. But I believe, and I'm convinced, that the biggest distraction to convince us not to get involved and inconvenience ourselves to help people is this. Drum roll. Personal comfort. We like that, don't we? I like my personal comfort. like my car, like my couch, like my spring break like my space, like my office. I just like my schedule. I'm comfortable with that. I don't want to be inconvenienced. And yet to go to the next level in service, we've got to practice loving our neighbor even when it inconveniences us. Love your neighbor. Neighbor. It's a great word. I was born in 1965. In fact, my birthday is Saturday. I'll turn 58, April 1st. No comment, please. And so, growing up, I was born in 1965. In 1968, 
The first ever episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood showed on television. My favorite. That's where I grew up. Some of you youngins are saying, who is Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Oh, it was awesome. Wholesome. I'd sit in front of that television as a little kid, five, six, seven years old. I'd watch Mr. Rogers walk out into the set. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in the beauty wood, a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I've always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in the neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please won't you be my neighbor. There's Mr. Rogers right there. <laughs> you say, how did you memorize that song? After 950 episodes, he wrote 200 songs, but that's the only one I know that he wrote. It's his most famous song. Mr. Rogers was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Shout out to Brad. <laughs> and Mr. Rogers 33 years from 2000, or rather from 1968 to 2001, that show, that wholesome, an ordained Presbyterian minister who told his parents, I'd like to get the gospel out somehow, but I don't want to be a pastor. So he said, I'll be a televangelist. I'll spread kindness through the television waves. Seems like a long lost art today, doesn't it? I'll come back to Mr. Rogers when I close the message because that only seems almost right, to be honest. And so here we are in this, in this story. It's revolutionary. It's extra mile living because our culture has done everything it can to remove inconvenience from our lives and yet the Christ life is all about being inconvenienced. I was reading a, an article. I want to just read you a bit of this it, 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 just as I introduce the message, and it'll move along quickly in just a moment. What makes it difficult, it, this article said, is how hard, hardwired we are against being interrupted or delayed. Our brains are increasingly programmed for speed as modern civilization revs itself into an ever shorter attention span. To slow down is anti-cultural and anti-social. In our driven, fast-paced Western lifestyles, we rarely even notice anything or anyone not essential to our daily routines. We are becoming less relational, less engaging of each other, and less trusting of strangers. Our need for speed has isolated us and made us blind to the needs of other fellow human beings. Think about it. How many people today really stop? Oh, we slow down, maybe. But stop and help. Traffic accident, a situation on the side of the road, or just something walking through a mall, or just going about our daily lives. But extra mile living sets out to reverse this trend, to make us more aware of the people in our immediate space, and to serve with an excellent spirit and represent Jesus Christ at the next level. So back to the parable. 
The lawyer is trying to escape inconvenience. Elijah, I'm not a lawyer, but I've learned this about lawyers as I've watched them. They're always looking for an escape clause, a loophole. It's kind of part of what they do. I mean, you try to find a loophole for your client or for yourself to win the case or win the argument. So the lawyer is looking for that loophole. And notice with me, if you would please, as we read verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, looking for a loophole, he says to Jesus, Jesus just said, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, uh, huh. Who's my neighbor? Looking for a loophole. But love has no loopholes. He wants to escape the responsibility of loving the unlovely in his neighbor. We're the same way. It seems today, even in the church, we have certain prejudices against certain people for whatever reason we may have. He's trying to limit the extent of who his neighbor is. Therefore, he asks the question, well, 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 who is my neighbor? Jesus, then, as you're going to see, answers the question, and he gives us this famous parable of what it means to go the extra mile and serve with an excellent spirit. Would you read it with me? Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse number 30, the Bible says, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a a priest was going down that road. And he saw him. But he didn't want to be inconvenienced. So he passed by on the other side. A Levite... Likewise, when he came to the place, saw him. But he too didn't want to be inconvenienced. So he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan. Why a Samaritan? It's interesting, isn't it? It seems that Jesus always brought up Samaritans or Samaria. Even when he said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Egypt. Why not Egypt? Why not Edom? Why not some other country? Why Samaria? Why did he say I must needs go through Samaria? Why did he stop and witness to that woman at the well who was of Samaria, married five times, shocking up with the sixth person until she met the perfect seven, Jesus Christ, and her life was changed forever? Why? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Remember what I told you about the Samaritans? Jews hated them. A lot of prejudice. In fact, when Jesus said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, you'll never reach the uttermost parts of the world until you reach Samaria. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. They had their prejudices. They didn't do much. They came under persecution. Saul. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it speaks about Philip. They finally got things right. He sent persecution as a result of that. They went to Samaria. Philip preached a revival. And in Samaria... You see, until we deal with our prejudices, we're never going to reach this world. 
until we deal with this idea of who is our neighbor and loving our neighbor, not just the neighbors we like. Jesus showed the lawyer the true meaning of the law that the lawyer had just quoted him. Are your neighbors only the people in your own nation? Are your neighbors only the people that you live by? Are your neighbors only those who are your friends? No, our neighbor is anyone who has a need. That's who our neighbor is. Our neighbors are more than the people who look like us. Our neighbors are more than who who live where we live. Our neighbors are more than the people who like what we like. Our neighbors are more than the people who drive what we drive. Our neighbors are more than the people who vote the way we vote. At the core of Jesus' definition of my neighbor is the thought that a neighbor is anyone who is willing to be inconvenienced to help me. Question. Put up Luke chapter 10, verse 36 on the screen. Who are you proving to be a neighbor to? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Who are you proving to be a neighbor to? Because that's what extra mile living is. Don't miss this. Extra mile living is a commitment to once again become the world's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, the world's true neighbor by living with an inconvenience me sign or a do not disturb me sign. Are we willing to let the world know that we can be inconvenienced? This morning, I, as your pastor, I want you to inconvenience me. The only advantage I've had over you is for the past two weeks, I've had the privilege of being under deep Holy Ghost conviction about my busy schedule. How that I'm really good at overlooking things. Yesterday, I went to visit Jasmine, who is John, sits on the second row, serves at all of our first services, and sometimes stays the second. He's got a daughter in a wheelchair, and she's always asking me, come visit me, come visit me, I miss you, I want, I want to give you a hug, come visit me. And for the last six months, I found a way to get out of it. I found a way, a text will work, I'll just text her. I'll just send her dad a little note. Until yesterday. You know, one thing I hate to do is preach under serious conviction the whole service. (laughs) I thought, I got to do something to help this sermon. I'm just being honest. I tell you, if you're a preacher, you know what I'm talking about. If you're not convicted to your own sermons, they ain't no good. I was convicted. I've been convicted. I've been dreading this sermon in a way. I'm I'm, I'm overemphasizing this point. I really am. And sometimes we as preachers will overemphasize to make a point. But yesterday, I went to his house. I walked in that house. I gave Jasmine a hug. I got involved. I I made an impact. I I became a neighbor. Because I know that if I'm going to be 
uh, serving with an excellent spirit at the next level, I need to be willing to be inconvenienced. So how can you be a great neighbor? How can you go with the extra mile? How can you serve with excellence? Here it is, number one, open your eyes to see the need. Open your eyes to see the need. When we went to Israel, and some of you here went with me to Israel, we had a good group from our church. We actually had the privilege of, of, of going and walking past and seeing the Jericho Road. It's an incredible thing. And I've got several pictures that we took while in Israel of the Jericho Road. And it's an interesting thing. It's a rocky road. It's a rough road. It's, a, it's, 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 it's got a lot of sand. It's very curvy. And in 2020, when we visited Israel, we got to see this road from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's interesting, there's so many things about this road. Some say that Golgotha was on the Jericho Road. And Jesus, the good Samaritan, who in that story was the man who got beat up on the cross in between two thieves. The similarities to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in this story are another sermon. But I want to take you through that first verse as we wind our way down the Jericho Road. In verse 30, the Bible says that Jesus replied as he began to give this parable, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. The very fact that he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho indicates that this man was a Jew, and that is very important to the text. He was a nameless man. Could have been anyone. Just just a man. The King James says a certain man. The road was a winding road. It was a treacherous road. It was a perilous road. He's walking down that road, and thieves were opportunists looking for for someone to rob. Can you imagine how he must have felt as he was walking down that road, and all of a sudden he sees some strangers. They get up and began to walk towards him. Several of them. Robbers. As they approach him, he, his heart begins to beat really fast, and he, he begins to sense danger, and, and, and this is not good. He goes on to say in that same verse that Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And then it says something very interesting, that he fell. He fell amongst robbers. To fall is one thing, but to fall amongst robbers is a totally other thing. There's not, er- not everything I can say that I can totally understand and feel what someone feels, but I can this man. I was in Chicago as a 20-year-old boy in gangland area of Chicago, being an evangelist, if you will, just inviting people to church and knocking on doors by myself. And I began to sense danger as two, three came out of that bush, and two, three came behind that car, and two, three, and before I knew it, I was surrounded by 10 men who proceeded to to mug me. They beat me. Bad. The story has a good ending, and it's a funny story when I tell it in a youth message. I can, I can really tell the story, and it's got a lot of emotion to it and feeling to it, and I don't have time to tell that story this morning, but just to tell you that I can tell you falling amongst robbers is, is not fun. And when there's so many thieves that fighting is not an option, it's even worse. When he left home that morning, I guarantee you he wasn't thinking, I'm going to get robbed today. Nobody woke up this morning thinking that either. 
Nobody woke up this morning thinking you're going to have cancer. Nobody woke up this morning thinking you're going to have a bad day. Nobody woke up this morning thinking you're going to get a car accident. Nobody woke up this morning thinking anything, but it's going to be a great day. We don't wake up and think about falling. We don't start a business for it to foreclose. We don't get married because we're making plans for divorce. We don't start school so we can drop out. We don't buy a house so it can be foreclosed on. We don't start a business so we can go bankrupt. But things do happen. They happen all the time. And in 30 years of pastoring, I've seen that happen on multiple times. It goes on to say that Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and left him half dead. He feels the jagged rocks as they cut his flesh. They're on this sandy road to Jericho. He's bleeding. He's naked. He's wounded. They took everything he had. Have you ever gone through anything that took everything you had? I saw a couple of hands go up. I didn't even ask for that, but I, I guarantee you many in this building and online are feeling that right now. Wounded. You were left abandoned. You were left exposed and vulnerable. Now I have a second question. Did you appreciate it when somebody stepped in to help? In your darkest hour, when things were worse than they ever were, When someone left you and took everything you had, it could have been your fault, it could have been their fault, it could have been just a circumstantial thing, but but you had someone step into your life. Listen, church, there are people who are wounded all around us this morning, even in this building. Open your eyes and see the need. Some are wounded in body. Their health has turned to sickness. Others are wounded in self-respect. They've been defeated. They've been humiliated. Some have been wounded in affections. And they find themselves this morning very lonely or even grief-stricken. Others have been wounded spiritually. They've lost the joy of their salvation. Or maybe they've even fallen into sin. Others have been wounded financially, economically. Their lives have fallen apart financially i say all that to remind you that that's where we're at in the story this man has fallen he's on the jericho road the robbers have stripped him they've beat him they've left him half dead and as they leave he then hears the steps of someone else coming oh no could it be another enemy i don't have anything else Oftentimes, it seems when people have been wounded one time, they just expect it to happen again. I've seen this all throughout my ministry. Wounded in a bad relationship. Someone else comes along. Pastor, I just don't know if I can trust her. I've been hurt before. I hear the steps. I just just don't know. Some have been wounded in church or by a ministry. Can't tell you how many people I've talked to. I don't go to church. I just had a bad experience. I was talking to a champion student the other day at Panda Express. Just having lunch with him. And 
I do that just to get to know them. And I was asking a bunch of questions. And finally, I said, hey, do your parents, what, so tell me about your parents. They go to church. Uh, well, pastor, I, <laughs> that's a sore subject. Oh, well, tell me about it. Well, they, uh, I, think, I think as far as I can tell them, and I've, I've asked my parents to go to gospel, but they, they, they just say, well, you know, look, that's for you, not for us, because we used to go years ago, but we don't want to go into it. We just think all churches probably are alike, just like the one that hurt us. Someone has a miscarriage. They get pregnant again, and they fear, will I lose this one too? You see, our past can color our perception of the present. That's where he was at. You learn that not everyone who smiles at you is your friend. Those steps coming your way don't mean that somebody cares. You don't know if the steps coming towards you are God sending his angels or the devil sending his demons. You just don't know. And notice here in the text that Jesus points out three steps. Three different times he heard the steps. First of all, he hears the steps of the priest. We're going to call these steps of indifference. Look at the text. It says in verse number 31, Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he saw him. He represents the priest, the moral law. He's good with the moral law. He, he knows the moral law. He obeys the moral law. He dots every I. He crosses every T. I mean, he's religious. But maybe he thought, well, I've been to the temple already this morning. I've already kind of done my duty for the day. Plus, this dude, he should have known better. And the Bible says, those steps, they came and they went. Steps of indifference, apathy. Secondly, we see the Levite. He represents the ceremonial law. You know, the practical side of the law, doing things. And so, he says, the Levite, he came to the place and saw him. In fact, the King James gives a little bit more where it says he came to the place and he looked upon him. He was inquisitive. He looked. We like to look, don't we? We like to slow down on the gory car accident because it's just kind of interesting, right? I mean, like, oh, man. I, oh, man. And then we text somebody, you won't believe what I saw. We're interested. We're inquisitive. In fact, sometimes we even have a little pity. Sort of feel bad for him. But he offered no real assistance, not even a comforting word or, or anything. Have you ever been around someone that's just really good at watching you bleed? Not helping, not healing like this man? You shouldn't have been there yourself. Anyone could have seen that coming. Question, how good are you at walking past a need? I've already told you how good I am. I could do it for six months. I could walk past a need for six months. I mean, I'm busy. In fact, it's kind of cool because everybody says, Pastor, we know you're busy. What a great thing it is to be a pastor who's busy, and everybody knows it, so I don't have to. The Levite and the priest show us that restoration is more than observation. 
We're good at observing, but not so good at getting involved. It's more than looking safely from our car or our couch and assessing the situation from the comfort of our own luxury. And let's face it, we all have luxury. We're comfortable. Great cars, great beds, great mattresses, great lives, great families. We got it made. Great pews, great central heat and air and padded pew. I mean, we just, we like our comfort. Don't inconvenience me. But then notice the third steps he hears coming. They're not the steps of indifference or the steps of inquisitiveness. These are the steps of inconvenience. Look, if you would, please, at 1033. It says, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Our compassion is to be driven not by the worth of the recipient, but by the need. The Good Samaritan Church is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The priest came by representing the moral law. The Levite came by representing the ceremonial law. And church, I have news for you today. The law can't save anyone. It is only Jesus that can save. He was our good Samaritan. He came down. He got off. and came, He came down from heaven. He came down to earth so that we who are down on earth could go up to heaven. Hallelujah. I don't have time to develop that in the message today, but I will share with you Romans chapter 8 and verse number 2 and 3. Listen to this. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son, the good Samaritan, in the likeness of of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Hallelujah is right. Extra mile living is a revolution of love. Extra mile living is a revolution of interest. Extra mile living is a revolution of compassion. It changes things. I love this quote from Brian Dolman. Evangelism without compassion is a loveless duty. And compassion is not fueled by duty, but by God's amazing grace. Wow. You know what? I'm going to confess something to you this morning. Obligation, duty, and guilt can motivate. Anybody ever been motivated in their lifetime by those things? I have. I was in a religious movement that that's how they motivated you. Guilt, obligation, and duty. But here's what I learned about those three things. They do not have long-term sustainability. They just don't. But compassion will keep you going even when the response of the recipient is not favorable. Compassion works. And being a Christian does not make you a compassionate person. Being a Christian simply places us in the privileged category of those for whom God has been compassionate towards. And that's the only motivation I need. And that's why I I, I share with you these little questions to take home with you and to take the messages to the next level. And I want you to pay close attention to number four this week if you do this. Why is it impossible to love and serve others like the Good Samaritan until we realize that what we need is the Good Samaritan? And that's Jesus. Jesus. 
Compassion is fueled by empathy. It's a sense of walking in another person's shoes. Compassion is someone else's hurt in my own heart. Compassion increases when we help others and forget about ourselves. Inconvenience me. My compassion increases. Open your eyes to see the need. Number two, obey the promptings to help. Obey the inner promptings to help. Look at Luke chapter 10, verse 34. It's really cool. He went to him, this good Samaritan. He bound up his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. He set him on his own beast, on his animal. He brought him to the inn. He took care of him. I mean, it's like a power-packed verse. There's like five sermons in that verse. One verse. Five sermons, a whole series. What he did was he made contact on a plethora of levels in one verse. Because we can impress at a distance, but impact, that happens up close. Christians are really good at being impressive. We can impress with our eloquence. We can impress with our knowledge. We can impress with what we know. We can impress. We can impress with our looks. We can impress with our... But people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. It's impressive to be impressible. But if you're going to impact somebody, you've got to get involved and be inconvenienced. When the Holy Spirit prompts you to act on compassion, don't ignore the prompting. This man was an interruption to his schedule. No doubt about it. He was going somewhere. He had things to do. He was on that road for another purpose, but he was willing to be inconvenienced because ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. Sometimes I think that maybe we approach the church and think, well, you know what, all this just happens because, you know, money grows on trees and everything just happens and they probably got a really rich guy at the church that gives everything to pay all the bills. It's far from the truth. God's plan for the church was to put together a group of people that would come together in a local church setting all over this town. There's churches like ours that that it costs every person in the church something to make ministry worth something and to make ministry work. There's a dollar sign attached to this. God provides, but he uses his people as we sacrificially give and inconvenience our finances for the ministry's sake. Love does not look at obstacles. Love looks at opportunities. Recently, someone said to me, I just don't like it when you ask for money. I just don't like that. What you're really saying is, I just don't like the fact that you're inconveniencing my plans for the month. I wanted to spend that money on something else, and now you're asking for it. Now i got to feel bad that I'm not going to give it. God loves a cheerful giver. When that Samaritan looked at that suffering man half dead... Don't you think he had an inner prompting? Don't you think that? I mean, something prompted him. Church, church, we have the responsibility to help one another. That's what we do here. You can't live your life autonomously disconnected from people. That's not God's plan. You have the responsibility of getting involved with people, even when getting involved with people will cost you something. Because the real proof of your faith in God is exhibited in how you treat me and how I treat you. 
That's why 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20 says that if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his neighbor or his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This man was a giver. And Jesus details in John chapter, in Luke chapter 10, verse 34, five verbs, really six, but I'm just taking five. He actually, there's six. He went to him, but we'll skip that one. Five different verbs, just how active this man's compassion was. I'll count them on my fingers. You read them on the screen. Bound up, pouring on, set him on, brought him to, took care of him. You said, are you about to preach that five-series sermon this morning? No. But I am going to give you an outline that might work for some of you if you preach. The first thing I see here is bound up. I think that just talks to practical help. He just gives practical help. He's willing to get down off of his beast and get involved in the situation. Practically. And he binds up his wounds. But in addition to that, it says he poured on oil and wine. So this is kind of two things happening at one time, right? He's pouring into the wound and binding that wound up just to kind of get to the next place. He knows he's not going to be healed immediately, but he knows he can start the process by pouring in. Parents, don't stop pouring into your kids even when they're rebellious. Keep pouring in. What is oil a symbol of? The Holy Spirit. What is wine a symbol of? We're having the Lord's Supper next Friday at Good Friday, or two uh, two weeks from Friday. Wine's a a picture of the blood of Christ. Can I tell you, when I had a rebellious son, his name's Matthias, we call him affectionately around here, Mo. He went on about a six-month little rebellion on his mom and dad's tough. And all we could do, honey, is just keep pouring in. Man, what I wanted to do was strangle him. But I kept pouring in. We pray prayers like, oh, Holy Spirit of God, please convict him of this. Holy Spirit, please show him what he's doing. Oh, we had to pour in all the blood of Jesus. We plead the blood of Jesus over our son. Oh, God, please hear our prayer, hear our cry. And then we sit him down and just pour into him. Son, this is not the right thing. You're making bad decisions. This is going to cost you. It's going to... Look at him now. It took a while. took a few months. Sometimes it doesn't happen right away. I was leaving the house this morning at 6 a.m. and I backed out of my driveway and I saw his car pulling in. Mo, my rebellious son of days gone by. I called him. I said, what are you doing? It's 6 o'clock. He said, oh, Dad, somebody in the church needed a ride to the airport. Just thought I'd bring him. I said, all right, son, proud of you. Talk to you. Honey, it's, it's just, I'd look back to those months we poured in, didn't give up, just kept pouring in that oil and that wine. Holy Spirit, the blood of Jesus doesn't always see results immediately, but just keep on pouring in. It won't return void. He knew that. It says then that he set him on. He gave him some relief help. He reduced his burden. You know, he had his beast, but he said, you know what? I'm going to get off the beast and get on the ground so the man on the ground could get on the beast. 
I'm going to go without so he can go with. I'm going to eat McDonald's so he can eat Ruth's Chris. I'm going I'm to go without so he can go with. I'm going to give a little bit to that missionary, and maybe I won't be able to do what I normally do, but I'm going to relieve his burden so I can carry one a little bit. Next we see he brought him to. He gave him direction help. I love this because, you know, sometimes when I help people, they don't know what's next. What do I go? What do I do? I don't know where to go. I don't know who to turn to. I don't know who to talk to. He takes him to the end. He says, look, this is the next step. This is where you need to go. And then finally, he took care of him. He gave him financial help. He loved him through giving. It will cost you. Jesus had a care ministry. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, listen to how Jesus ministered. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good. He, he healed all who were oppressed by the devil and God was with him. Oh, listen, I look at our, our great Samaritan, our Lord Jesus, who went about doing good under the inner promptings of the Holy Spirit. I want to care about people like that. I want to be a person who cares. I read about the Apostle Paul in prison in Philippians chapter 2, and I'm blown away by verse 19 and 20. Would you join me in being blown away together? (laughs) The Lord Jesus, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Listen to this. Paul says, I just don't have anybody like this dude in my life. This dude's amazing. He's genuinely concerned for your welfare. The King James says he's, he naturally cares for your state. I like that word naturally because I think about the fact that, 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 that I've been given a divine nature. I, I, when I was saved, God's divine nature came into my life. And, and, and naturally, I believe, as a result of that, I should care too. Just naturally care for people. I don't understand people who say, you know, I'd be a good pastor if I just loved people. Get out of the ministry. You can't be. It's about people. It's what we do. Inconvenience me. Most Christians wear a do not disturb me sign on their backs. Let's change that to please disturb me. Just please disturb me. How willing are you to be inconvenienced for others? And finally, in closing, and I'll be quick. Thirdly, offer your care to others. Offer. Ask. Don't wait for somebody to say, I need your help. Rather, find someone to say, how can I help? Because rhetoric, not resources, changed this man. We're good at rhetoric. We're really good at saying, I'll pray for you. We're really good at saying, hey, I'll be thinking about you. We're really good with semantics in Christianity. But it ain't rhetoric God's looking for. God's looking for somebody to get involved. He's looking for somebody willing to put their resources on the line because real leadership is defined by what you do. I must ask myself, what can I do to help in every need that I see? And then listen to the Spirit lead me in that. Look at Luke 10, 35. It says, in the next day he took out two denarii. He gives them to the innkeeper. And he says, take care of him like really good care of him 
So good care that whatever you spend beyond this two denarii, I will repay you when I come back. Miserable is the man who thinks only of himself. Happy is the man who thinks of others. It's revolutionary. There is no life so empty as the self-centered life, and there is no life so centered as the self-emptied life. Empty yourself. Serve others. The Good Samaritan teaches us that it will cost you to help people, and sometimes we have to love people enough to just pay the bill. Just think about what Jesus paid for us. He paid the bill in total with a tip. Look at 2 Corinthians 8, 9 on the screen. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. May God give us the grace to come down to where the pain is. May God give us the grace to stop what we're doing and be inconvenienced for others. This is what Jesus did for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Lord found me at the end of my rope. I was bleeding. I was wounded, left for dead. I was in a mess, but he came to me. How did he come to you? Were you suicidal when he came to you? Were you beaten and discouraged and defeated and depressed when he came to you? Oh, listen, I was about to make a mess of my life when he came to me. What a beautiful picture of Christ the Good Samaritan was. And so back to your question, Mr. Lawyer. Which of these three, verse 36, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? The question is now turned on the lawyer. What kind of neighbor am I? He had to ask himself, what kind of neighbor am I? And so then in Luke 10, 37, he says, he could not even move himself to say the word Samaritan, even though Jesus used the word Samaritan. He said, and a Samaritan, but he couldn't use the word. He was so prejudiced. Couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. So he just said, the, the, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, you go and do likewise. He says that to us today. Are you willing to get past your prejudices and be inconvenienced for your neighbor? Anybody. Remember, a ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. And there's another really cool truth here that I wonder about. I can't say for sure, but I wonder if the good Samaritan said to the innkeeper, here's two denarii. And if this isn't enough, when I come back, I'll pay you back. I've got to believe that he had a good relationship with that innkeeper. It reminded me of the importance of having good relationships in our community. Because sometimes we need help to help people, don't we? And I think it's important that we understand that sometimes when we're helping someone and we need someone's help, that having a strong relationship like the Good Samaritan likely did with the innkeeper. 
And then finally it says, the next day he took out the two denarii. He gives them to the innkeeper. He says, take care of him. Whatever you spend, I will repay when you come back. So even more than that truth, I wonder if this truth is, is, is more powerful. And that is that the innkeeper in this story represents the Christian. And Jesus is the good Samaritan. And so Jesus says to us, I want you to take care of people. I want you to love your neighbor like yourself. And I, I want you to know something as well. It's going to cost you. But Jesus says, don't worry, I'll repay you when I come back. Wow. What a beautiful picture of Christ. So back to Mr. Rogers in closing. In 1998, the Emmy Awards called Mr. Rogers to notify him that he would receive the Lifetime Achievement Award. This is a huge award. It's, a, it's really the most Christian thing they do at the Emmys. I don't watch the Emmys, but I encourage you to watch this. You can Google it. It's four minutes. I'm only going to show you a minute. Mr. Rogers, an aged man at this time, walks up to the platform to receive at the Emmys from all of Hollywood and all these famous actors and actresses, this humble, ordained Presbyterian minister who does a show where he washes the feet of an African-American, where he takes care of special needs children and loves them, where he adds value into people's lives, receives the Lifetime Recipient Award. He steps up onto the platform. He says a few words, and then he asks the audience to participate in something that I want you to participate in with me. Watch the video. I can't do that without crying. They made a movie of his life, and it's cool. Tom Hanks was the actor for Mr. Rogers. When that scene came on, they did it for 60 seconds. And all I could do in front of my computer screen was just cry. As I thought about the people who cared for me and invested in my life, like I can't help but to think about people like Cliff Kaufman. I miss him. I just could always call him. I just knew he'd answer, and I knew he'd always help. I miss him. I think about the greatest good Samaritan God's given me on planet Earth, and that is this little Japanese girl over here. How many times has she loved me when I've been unlovely? But it didn't stop her. I thought about my first Sunday school teacher, Dave Chittam, who poured into me as a kid, loved me, stuck with me through thick and thin. I thought about my daddy. Got a text this morning, this week. Hey, son, just thinking about you. I love you, boy. Take care of your family. They're your first priority. But I tell you, church, no one's ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend so kind as he. No one else can take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cares for me. The good Samaritan in this story is Jesus. 
And he looks at you and he looks at me and he says, will you be a good neighbor until I come back? Would you be willing to pay the price? Would you be willing to be inconvenienced? Would you be willing to be disturbed for the people I love and died for, including you? Would you prove to be a neighbor? These are more than just simple core values with a letter in front of them. I'm rarely this passionate. But I just think this is a revolutionary thought. I just think this is a game changer. I just think this takes, this takes the whole series to a new level. When you and I will begin to admit that we're too busy. We need to slow down and not let culture determine how far we're willing to go to help a world dying in sin and be a good Samaritan like Jesus. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I just would ask that you would take a moment as we magnify Christ, lift his name high, make it abundantly clear that this is not about us, it's about him. But if you need this morning to come to the altar, it's open. If you need to stay seated for a few moments and pray, you can. Whatever your response is, may it be something. May it be something. Father, I love you. I pray for those in this building, including myself and my family, our church family, those watching online. For God, would you please take this incredible parable that is so familiar, Lord, even to the world. It's a good thing. May we today understand it at the next level. May the truths from this passage and this text become so real to us that we're willing to address our prejudices, our difficulties, the things, Lord, that are holding us back from being willing to be inconvenienced for others, starting with those in this room. Father, I thank you for the conviction you placed on my heart this week and the last couple of weeks. Change me from the inside out. Lord, help me not to just be an impressive person, but an impactful person. I love you. And by the way, God, thank you for coming down so that I could go up. In Jesus' name. Amen. Shall we stand?